everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes. And we're going to discuss an article this week. We're taking a little break from our book overviews, and we're going to dive into Tim Keller's most recent article on evangelicals. This is the second in a four-part series on evangelicalism uh, in America. And we've done a prior podcast on the first article. This second article moves his argument on and has some really key concepts. And so there's a lot in this article. We won't entirely do it justice, so I would urge you to read it. But uh, I think we want to hit some of the highlights and some points and some distinctions that he makes that, that are helpful for us as we think about our Christianity interacting in the world, how to be informed about the world without being conformed to the world. Right. And I, the first article was really insightful. It was on the mainline denominations. And so I summarized this in the weekly speak last week. His point is essentially what happened in the mainline denominations over the last 50 years mm-hmm. is that slowly and surely the mainline denominations adopted secular uh, tactics to reach people. And before you know it, they became secular. This is the story of the decline of the mainlines is now many mainlines believe the same things as a broadly secular public who now don't need the mainlines. Right. For anything, there's no. You're not actually evangelizing at that point. You're just fitting in. Salt has lost its savor, if you will. Right. Evangelicals have a very different experience in culture, and that's something I think Keller does a good job of portraying and defining and helping us to understand. Is evangelicals have taken almost the exact opposite route. If the problem of the main lines is assimilation right. to a progressive culture or a secular culture. The evangelical church has become more fundamentalist in aligning with an aggressive stance towards culture. It's a good way of framing that. So as we're going through this episode, just keep that in mind. This is part two of a very broad analysis contrasting with mainline Protestantism. So to begin, let's define some terms. And that's what Keller does at the beginning. And this is really difficult to do, but I think his way is the the concepts that he uses to differentiate between a couple of these different groups are really helpful even if we see his concepts and say okay now using that framework how might we tweak this or how does this apply right. here it's just a it's a useful set of models to understand what's going on in american life and the first distinction he wants to make is what's the difference between an evangelical on the one hand, a fundamental, a fundamentalist on the other, and a progressive on the other. And this tension between these three, in some way similar, in some way different, sets up the whole discussion. So what is an evangelical? Well, he starts with uh, theologian David Bebbington as listed in a book, four traits that make a, an evangelical, but it's, these are theological traits that fundamentalists would agree with as well, but progressives largely do not agree with all four of these. So Mm -hmm. here's a similarity between fundamentalists and evangelicals. They're not the same, but they share these four basic theological commitments. Number one, the full authority of the Bible as the sole and supreme rule of faith and practice, the inspiration and authority of the scriptures, if you will. 
the necessity of the new birth by the Holy Spirit. This is a conversion experience. This is the old self is crucified. This is regeneration. A lot of theological terms there, but it is some new birth by the Holy Spirit. Third, the reconciliation with God through the atoning work of Christ, not our works or choices. So through the atoning work of Christ. And then finally, a distinct responsibility to share the gospel in word and deed. So those four core theological ideas are similar between fundamentalists and evangelicals. Mm Mm-hmm. He then moves on and says, but that's not the end of the story. There are also your social or sociological location in which you live, meaning your culture, your background, doesn't override the theological commitments for evangelicals. It does for progressives. Progressives don't necessarily share the four theological commitments, but the social Issues, the social characteristics have primacy for them, mm-hmm. whereas the theological commitments have primacy for fundamentalists. The uh, six areas of social situation, if you will, would be, for example, we tend to think of fundamentalism as in addition to having those four theological commitments to be moralistic, really strict conformity to behavioral codes. Uh, Secondly, you tend to think of fundamentalism in addition to those core theological commitments to idea of individualism versus social forces, meaning that every person can choose to do right and that social forces haven't really affected them that much. The third is anti-intellectualism, a pull away from scholarship in the fundamentalist world. Next, anti-institutionalism, a fundamental distrust of any traditional institution, and really the use of celebrity-driven networks in, in these churches. Some of the big traditional churches, for example, a large traditional Baptist church not that far from us that has a really charismatic uh, senior pastor. That is kind of one of the social marks of fundamentalism. And then finally, enculturation, the maybe inadvertent, but the identifying your theological commitments and your conservative political party mm-hmm. far too closely. So progressives would be on the other side of those social things. Fundamentalists would be on one. Now, that's a lot. How would you clarify that and reframe that a little? That's a lot yeah. of information. Well, this is this is a helpful way that Keller approaches the issue. You, you almost have two spectrums that we're talking about. And this goes back even historically. What Bebbington's talking about is what were evangelicals first known for? Mm-hmm. They were first a theological group or a religious sect of... Christianity in general. And they stuck to sharing your faith, mm-hmm. the inerrancy of the Bible, uh, being born again, not by works, but through grace, by grace through faith. And that started, so Keller wrote an article about this not too long ago in The New Yorker, What is an Evangelical, to where the theological has morphed onto a different continuum. Now it's not just, do you believe in inerrancy or do you not? Now you have, okay, you may believe in those theological distinctives, but where are you socially? What are your social or political markers? And that's another distinguishing factor now, as you mentioned, between progressives and fundamentalists. 
And some of the tension that's being felt in the Christian world right now is an argument over where evangelicals are going to land. Are they going to end up essentially fundamentalist or are they going to be progressive? And I think one of the best points that Keller makes in this article is both fundamentalists and progressives want their do not want there to be a third well-defined group in between. In other words, progressives don't want someone who shares at least some of their social sensibilities, maybe not the exact position, but at least acknowledging social factors matter and yet holding conservative theological beliefs. Right. And fundamentalists don't want a group that holds their four core commitments that would be considered really orthodox theological beliefs, but rejects some of the rigidity and ignoring the social thing. So both are trying to exclude the middle. Mm -hmm. Is that a good way of saying it? Yes. And the example that he gives, and I think this is actually a very good example and something that we haven't talked about on the podcast yet, but is kind of an elephant in the room for a lot of evangelicals, would be the rise and fall of Mars Hill. So Mm -hmm. if you've listened to that podcast, there's a lot of things to say about that podcast. And maybe someday, although I'm not promising this, we will talk about that in a podcast episode. But if you've listened to it, or, or if you haven't, it's a story of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. And actually, the reaction to the podcast is in some ways more insightful into yes. all of that happened exactly. at Mars Hill than the podcast itself. For whatever, the, for, for whatever good the podcast did, it provoked a lot of responses that bear out exactly what Keller is saying. So on a very conservative evangelical side of things, people were uh, essentially upset that anyone who believes something like complementarity is portrayed in the podcast as harboring abuse, having a demeaning view of women, because the podcast privileges progressive voices to talk about things like complementarianism, gender roles in the church, etc. Well, on the other side... You know, progressives attack the podcast by basically looking at uh, the fundamentalist critiques, saying that, well, you know, he was not really a true, he, he wasn't really a true member of their group, and therefore we can dismiss this all as progressive ideology. Well, both sides really do have a bone to pick here, and they both want to say the problem there was they weren't enough this. Either they didn't have the right theology or they weren't sensitive enough to social issues. And each person is going to have a mirror image of that depending on which group you find yourself in. Is that your read on the podcast? Exactly. For example, I'd say it this way. It's what I'm hearing you say. If I, if I were progressive, I would look at that and I would say, well, there you go. There's Mars Hill with abuse, overreach, uh, disrespect for women, etc. And you know what? That's inevitable. Anyone who holds those theological commitments will inevitably become an abusive uh, Mars Hill pastor. Right. On the other side, fundamentalists are going to want to say, this has everything to do with this individual. This is not reflective Mm -hmm. of what this theology is. In fact, it's a betrayal of the theology. Right. And so each side is going to exclude the middle by saying, look, this is just one individual here. The other side says, this is everybody who holds those conservative Mm -hmm. core theological beliefs. Yes. And evangelicals, I think, are caught in the middle saying, well, we do hold those core theological beliefs, and we don't at all agree with Mars Hill, and we don't at all agree with progressives that these theological beliefs 
have anything to do with uh, the abuse that happened mm-hmm. there. And so neither side likes the evangelicals. I think they sound, in my view, they sound too reasonable. And I mean it in this sense. If you are in a, f- a fringe group, an identity group, and I would consider fundamentalists and progressives both to be identity groups, you really need an enemy to survive. Mm-hmm. And you need an enemy that is, is black and white, if you pardon that. It is literally has to be night and day difference. You really can't have a group in the middle that goes, you know, I do agree with you somewhat, but I don't agree with you entirely. Yes. That's not helpful for progressives or fundamentalists in identifying themselves. Right. And, of course, even to talk about this, we have to caricature fundamentalism and, and progressivism to an extent. Because it is a continuous right, there is a spectrum of of people we're talking about here that do have nuanced and various right. understandings of these things. But we could parse this out on almost any social issue because everything is so polarized. So it, it, another easy one to do would be to talk about race, for example. You have one of the things that Keller points out is sometimes you have an equal and opposite reaction in these two groups to the social standing of the other groups. If you have progressives that are very woke, now you've got fundamentalists who are going out of their way to be anti-woke. Right. Whereas probably in the middle, it's let's evaluate this. If we agree in principle that there's a problem here, is this the best way to solve it? Right. That's going to look to a fundamentalist like, uh-oh, they're they're on the slippery slope. They're just buying into the secular culture. Right. But it's going to look to a progressive like, why are you having hesitations about this? Do you not care about this issue? Right. Why are you so hung up on not wanting to do what is obviously the solution to this problem? So you can get you can get polarized on any issue between these groups. And what I love about Keller's diagnosis here is evangelicals, for the most part, are going to find themselves in the middle. They're going to stick to theological uh, beliefs that that are summarized by these four that we mentioned, but also include taking the Bible at face value. We believe it's true. We believe it's inerrant. Um, Respecting church history, the things that Christians have always believed uh, up through the present. And then at the same time, Trying to have a potent and usable outward facing engagement, not just antagonism with our culture. So how do we reach into our culture, evangelize? How do we serve the people around us and yet not slide Theologically, That's the spot of an evangelical for the most part. He does a really good job of framing why evangelicals are hard to measure number one, and secondly, why they appear to be declining. And part of, I think part of his reason is there is this tug of war from either side, if you want to frame it that way, and evangelicals somewhere in the middle. It's very hard to differentiate yourself when you're in the middle, when the two on either side of you are trying to really push you out of existence by identifying you with the other guy. Right. And I think he he puts his uh, thumb on it that evangelicalism is kind of getting erased by both sides. They're kind of taking an eraser to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it makes it more difficult to say, look, I, I there is a distinct thing called evangelicalism. It still is robust, but you're so often having to rebut both mm-hmm. sides, it's hard to have a positive framing of what evangelicalism right. is. Yeah, to make one further point on this spectrum, I think the one that people think of most now is not probably what these terms have meant 
50 years ago. So if we use the if if we use the word fundamentalist 20 years ago, we would think of certain social dimensions of fundamentalism. We would think about a way a certain way that people dress maybe, we would think about not listening to secular music, not dancing, not drinking, not gambling, very rigid social and moral standards. Some of which are right, some of which are wrong, some of which are just matters of preference and wisdom, mm-hmm. but very strict social fundamentalism. Now fundamentalism actually means something more political. And this is how most people think of the term evangelical now is 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump. That's the stat that is the story of the last four years. And I don't even know that that's actually true because I don't think that they measure evangelicalism quite the right way. Mm -hmm. But essentially, evangelicals and fundamentalists have gotten lumped together as Trump supporters. Always Trump. Regardless of the merits of that, Progressives, then, are the people who would be never Trump, Democrats. Mm -hmm. But what's happened here, even as we use this language, is both of these camps on this spectrum, this would be the political spectrum, have now started to self-identify or identify the other by politics more than religious belief. Right. And that's been true insofar as now I think evangelicalism in general— has fallen prey to being absorbed into political categories rather than religious categories. And one of the ways to distinctly stand out as an evangelical is to insist that our religious beliefs do take precedence and are on a higher level, more fundamental level than our politics. And really, it's not even our politics. We we call everything politics now than our partisanship, right? than our partisanship. We are allied with a political group of people, and that is our highest allegiance. That's an anti-evangelical place to be. And we talked a lot about this leading up to the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Politics and partisanship, American political parties, political issues, are always subservient to what we believe is true about God, about humanity, what we read in the Bible. And progressivism and fundamentalism oftentimes flip that order. Right. And that's another good way to think about this spectrum is we have two competing political groups vying for or pushing against an evangelical group who should be, and I think faithful Catholics struggle with this as well. This isn't just evangelicals, but right. who should be saying, nope, we're going to stand on what we believe is true theologically. And then we're going to look for solutions that venture into different realms, social, political, etc. So that's another way that these groups are, are divided. And that one may be the way that people are most familiar with in American life. I think that's right. So if we've defined a little bit of what's, a, what's an evangelical theologically, socially, politically— And we've talked a little bit about what the identity markers are, that we come from a certain sociology is the way that Keller wants to put it. We have certain sociological traits. So this is where you get into like Jesus and John Wayne is a criticism, not on the surface of the theological stance of evangelicals, but on their sociological stance. What can we do then to turn things around? What can evangelicals do to move forward, to continue getting back to their mission, to reverse the decline of evangelicalism in the country? And being evangelicals, since we are evangelicals, we do believe that we should reverse the decline in the country. We want 
proper and true evangelicalism to thrive. Because we do believe that first and foremost, this is about believing in the gospel, believing in the authority of the scriptures, believing in salvation by grace through faith. So how do we stem the tide of decline in the evangelical church? That's a great question. And Keller has uh, several points that he wants to make on this. And I want to do a, a little bit of a uh, an aside before we jump into that as to what we need to do. You mentioned, for example, the book, Jesus and John Wayne. And I want to just make you, uh, and I think there are a couple of points in there that are well-made, particularly along this spectrum. But there are two groups of people that want to speak to evangelicals. And they're going to say some of the same things, but they have very radically different agendas. So, for example, there are evangelical voices out there that would say, evangelicals do not depart from your core theological commitments. That's what defines you, is the inspiration of Scripture, the conversion, the atoning work of Christ, the need to engage culture with the gospel. Don't get rid of that. But understand and be more sensitive to the fact that as you relate to this culture, social factors matter to people. They don't override your theological commitments, but we need to be nuanced when we look at it. That's useful. Mm -hmm. You have a group of people who do not share the theological commitments of evangelicals and will say the same thing. They'll say you're not paying enough attention to the social markers here. Mm -hmm. And so when you get into a book like Demez's book, for example, and I'll just let, uh, I'll leave it here. You can express your opinion. You can't always tell if this is friend or foe. In other Mm -hmm. words, what they're saying might be useful and interesting, but where they want to take you is a very different place. Yes. In other words, you could say that having been bought into identity politics and critical theory. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a lot of people who want to enter the tent and say, hey, I'm a Christian. I just happen to be more socially aware, and I want you to come over here with me. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when you scratch the surface, you realize this is a very secular-minded Yes. Worldview. There are others who are in that tent. Keller would be one of them and say, look, I just want to caution you. Let's be more socially engaging and a little more socially aware. And you scratch the surface and realize, oh, there are deep theological commitments Mm -hmm. there. I just want to warn you that not everybody who looks like a sheep is sheep. This is wise. And 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 I think this is one of our big cultural issues right now. And we mentioned this a while back on a podcast that the, there's a, some new data that shows that progressive Christians target evangelicals for conversion, for evangelism, right. more than they target the secular world. Right. And this goes back to a point I made earlier. The only way you can conceivably do that is if you are at your core allied with certain social principles that you want people to compromise on their theological principles to move toward. So you look at Jesus and John Wayne or several of these other books that are quote-unquote ex-evangelicals, evangelicals on the fringe. What they're doing is they're evangelizing people that hold certain theological truths. And they're going to, in some cases, bludgeon them with, right. but if you cared about this, then maybe you need to leave that behind. Hmm. They'll make you feel like a fundamentalist until you become a progressive. Right. Well... What we want to do here is say, let's move from our core theological beliefs out into a, a constructive engagement and a constructive ministry with the outside world. And that's going to mean that we do need to address things like abuse, 
sexuality, race, race. Mm-hmm. all of these social categories, but we're going to have to move to them from our core theological convictions, not what we've imbibed through osmosis in secular American culture. And I'm not saying that everybody who writes these books thinks that's what they're doing, right? but a lot of times that's exactly what's happening. They have imbibed the values of a secular culture, and now they're shaming other Christians for not doing the same thing. That's that's false teaching. I, yeah, and I, th- I really think we should be a little bit careful about that. Is you, you can agree with someone, but it's also we need to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. In other words, we need to acknowledge these social issues and we need to be serious about them, but we need to be wise enough to know that not everyone's agenda is the same as yours. Right. Keller does a great job with this. That's why we're talking about this article. He's a good voice. For example, the first thing on his list of things evangelicals um, can do to Uh, whether you call it reverse the decline or engage the culture better, is it emphasizes the fact that we do have certain core theological beliefs, certain truths that God has told us that override our feelings or our desires or anything else. And he makes this point. The United States is slowly running out of traditionally minded Americans to be converted. And what he means by that is no matter what your social beliefs Americans historically have all had a a foundation of Judeo-Christian or Christian beliefs, the dignity of humanity. That's not a progressive idea. That is a Christian idea that that people have imbibed on the progressive side. There's no Mm -hmm. fundamental foundation for that in the Darwinian progressive political world. But that's stopping, that's, that's no longer the case. And consequently, when you engage people, you don't have that common ground that you used to have. And so mm-hmm. he says that Protestants on the whole, evangelicals, are unwilling or unable to reach the highly secular or culturally very different yes. people. And I think we've been comfortable with our theological beliefs and assume everyone shares them. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, well, they don't all share my theological beliefs. How can I engage people while I hold those beliefs? Yeah, this is a really good point. And I, so in some ways, the, the picture that I had in my head while I was reading this is, if you take the U.S. population as a bell curve, mm-hmm. and you have certain norms that the middle of the curve believe, that curve has really shifted in the last generation right? to where to be on the fringes meant that you had to socially or religiously be pretty far from Orthodox Christianity in the 1950s and 60s. Now, to believe what the Bible says about something like gender, for example, or sexuality, is going to put you way away from the middle of the bell curve. And if we were defining fundamentalism that way, we would all be fundamentalists now. Um, But that's really not the case. And so what we need to wake up to is the majority of American people actually believe something really different than they did 30, 40, even 10 years ago. That curve is moving. So we are going to find ourselves several standard deviations away from the center of the bell curve here just by virtue of not moving, just by believing what people basically believed 30 years ago. Now, the issue there is you no longer have the cultural affinity that you do when you're standing in the middle of the bell curve. You don't have the common ground with the majority of people that you used to have. You're coming from the fringes. I think this is a good thing in this sense, is we got lazy when we thought everybody basically agreed with us. We coined the term 
unchurched. Mm-hmm. That is an interesting term. And here's what that means is, well, everybody basically believes some of the core Christian ideas. It's just some people aren't going to church and don't affiliate. What a curiously interesting idea that never would have occurred anywhere in biblical times. Right. I think now we are back more to the book of Acts and the powerful powerful impact of the gospel. Mm-hmm. When they came into a world, they had absolutely no illusions that anyone shared those core theological beliefs. I think what Keller is pointing out is the challenge is we're caught in the shift. Right. Now, where we're going is very good for the church, mm-hmm. but that shift is very uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. like when I've gained uh, you know 10 extra pounds and it's time to get off the couch and go work out. I'm going to be a far better person we will be a far better church after we work out. But it's not easy to get off the couch and start working out. Yes. I, I think we have been lulled into a kind of sleep in terms of what other people really believe. The assumption, too, that the broader Christ, the broader public is Christian as well is one of those things that's hard to confront but good for the church because it's, gonna, it's going to define what our job is in doing evangelism. Now, the flip side is the U.S. is slowly running out of traditionally minded Americans to be converted and conservative Protestants on the whole. That's what Keller wants to wants to call true evangelicals is conservative Protestants, not fundamentalist, not progressive. They are theologically very conservative. They are socially minded, but they have not borrowed secular categories. So one of the things that Keller's saying is Protestants, conservative Protestants on the whole, are unwilling or unable to reach the highly secular and culturally different. Mm-hmm. Some of this is a direct correlation with what you've just said. If you want to reach people who are secular, we need to own the fact that we believe very different things. It's, it does us no good anymore to pretend or to try to find ways that we are actually a lot like them. Mm-hmm. The gospel is different. It's radically different. That's what makes it so powerful is you look at Acts, they come in, they're preaching things that these people have never heard before, never thought about before. We've got to learn to be okay with that. Yes. That these are going, it's going to be such a mind-blowing, controversial, fresh, hopefully for, for the people that hear it, idea and reality that they're forced to make a decision. That's really what evangelism is, is presenting the gospel in such a way that people are forced to say, I think they got to take this or leave it. Right. But we're so used to presenting a gospel. It's like, but would you like this supplementary add-on? Right. Would you like fries with that? Yes. It's, we're going to have to get to a place where, yep, we are different. We are right. very different. We believe very different things. And we believe that this is the way God created you and he loves you. Present the gospel. Take it or leave it. Of course, I'm not saying that it's just one time. This is over a course of relationships. But right. it's, it's a stark differentiated choice from what people are currently doing. That's going to be a good thing. The second thing, he kind of morphs into it a little bit. The second thing that we need to move away from is he says one of the traits of fundamentalism and to a certain extent evangelicalism is that we've been, broadly speaking, historically prone to have a celebrity-driven culture and big, big networks. In other words, institutionalized churches And the reality of it is there have been many churches and leaders guilty of spiritual and sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And so identifying too much with that model of the celebrity-driven 
church culture and the big, big, big church network is when you have people, as you inevitably will, who are guilty of spiritual or sexual abuse, then that that entire, quote, institution of the church falls. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things he's, uh, that he is suggesting is when you look back at the one of the other differences about the Acts, the church in Acts, is not only did they realize they were different, they also uh, really, in a kind of a, what I'd call a uh, grassroots way, engaged the culture. They didn't say, okay, wait a minute, we need a big old organization and a couple famous people here before we can engage mm-hmm. the culture. Am I reading him right in number two, or do you see something different there? No, I, I, I think that's definitely true. And some of it is the alleviation of responsibility right. to go and do what we individually have been called to do. This is actually one of the beautiful things about evangelical philo- theology is that we believe that every individual is charged with the responsibility to be able to share their faith and to talk about to others about what God is doing in their life, to read their Bible, mm-hmm. understand it, be able to talk to other people about it. This doesn't demean the role of Christian leaders at all, but it means that every individual believer has that responsibility. And so in some ways we've defaulted back to an idea that, no, we actually can't do any of that. We need these celebrities to do it, or we need to load all of our authority into these big voices who will go and do the evangelizing and then we'll go to their events and churches. Nope. That's all of us. We all have to do evangelizing. We all have to talk about our faith. We all have to read our Bibles. We all have to know, pray, do what God is calling us to do by the Holy Spirit. It's an individual religion. That's one of the beauties of evangelicalism. And one of the things that Keller's pointing out is we've defaulted away from that and we need to get back to it. Yeah, great. One of the ways I know this is true is that we all have felt this way before. But you get a, quote, champion for Christianity in the culture. Someone who's really famous, say a big recording artist Mm -hmm. or a politician or somebody else. And then something or maybe even a megachurch pastor, but just someone who says, wow, look at them. They're really famous and they believe in the gospel. Look at all the good they're doing. And then they deconvert Mm -hmm. or, you know, a, a, a Christian music artist who's huge. The next thing you know, it's like, yeah, I I don't actually believe that stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. And notice how much wind it takes out of your sails. Now, is that sad? Of course it is. Is it disappointing? Yes, it is. But I think that takes too much wind out of people's sails. And it tells me we've put too much hope. Mm -hmm. I think Keller has really hit a point here. We have put too much hope in celebrities to, uh, for the gospel. If no one famous, in the world agrees with us. You know what that's called? That's called the beginning of Christianity. (laughs) Right. And we don't need anyone famous in the world to agree with this truth because we're relying on the power of God and the Holy Spirit. I think it's been easy for us to be encouraged by famous people who hold our beliefs, but then to be overly discouraged to find out that all too often they've been human. Mm Mm-hmm. Another point that he makes that I think is interesting for us to think about is he says that conservative churches in general, evangelicals and fundamentalists, are grappling with problems around abuse and around race. Mm -hmm. And I think both of those deserve their own conversation. But what I want to say is if we're going to realign ourselves with what we actually believe is true and not just a certain political tribe— 
then what we've got to do is we've, we've got to stand where we think God calls us to stand, where the Bible calls us to stand on these issues. And we are at cross purposes with some of the cultural movements of our day. So, for example, evangelical Christians, faith, faithful Christians in general, need to be okay being called progressive on issues of race and abuse if it means speaking the truth against racial injustice or abuse in the church. Right. That's okay. Right. In the same way, we've got to be okay being called fundamentalists on sexuality. Right. We have to be because that's what the Bible teaches. And if somebody wants to berate you for being a fundamentalist on that or if somebody wants to berate you for being too progressive on these other topics, that just reinforces that we are not actually in the same spectrum politically as most of the people in our country. Mm -hmm. And so we are not going to just react the way our tribe does or the way our politics would dictate or our candidate or something like that. Instead, we have to have the thoughtful engagement with with what's going on around us to say, but on this issue, what does God call us to do? Mm -hmm. And you may have pressure from the right, you may have pressure from the left, but ultimately our allegiance is above that divide. And so on these issues, I, I like that Keller's saying this. Because I think depending on who you identify with, you read this and you say, oh, that sounds a little progressive to right. me. Right. Or have you seen what people are doing to address some of these problems? That's uh-huh. clearly wrong. Uh, but that, I thought that was a great point is we, we actually need to know what we believe. And then if we get labeled something, that's OK. Right. I think that you hit the nail right on the head with that. You know, his third thing is a very good point, and it really talks about, for evangelicals, be very, very careful about politicizing our theology in the sense that with fundamentalists, one of the the, uh, marks of fundamentalism now is that you are almost completely identified with a particular political party or platform. Mm Mm-hmm. And you just got through talking about evangelicals. Well, it's not going to be an entire identification. It's going to take you where your theological commitments, where the truth takes you. But he says, notably, conservative church politicization has basically alienated half the country, whichever half. Mm -hmm. If you are a progressive Christian and you've so aligned yourself with a progressive party, if you will, you just alienated 50% of the nation. And if you are a fundamentalist and you have a, you have so closely aligned yourself with a conservative political party, you just alienated half. Right. Uh, and so I think that's an interesting point. What do you it, think about it is, that? I, I, this may be a point where I, I disagree a little bit, not with what he's saying, but the mm-hmm. implications of what he's saying. Alienating uh, half the country is inevitable. You just want to make sure you do it for the right reasons. Doing it the way that he's describing for purely political reasons is probably not the right reason. So we just need to be careful where we plant our flag as evangelicals because there are a lot of different hills to die on. And if you do die on a hill, you are going to alienate people. But is it a hill worth dying on or not? And that's where I want to go back to. We should definitely be dying on theological hills, what we think the Bible is saying. And I think what Keller's getting at here is, there are certain ways to die on a political hill that unnecessarily alienates 50%. Because I just want to nuance that by saying if your criteria is, oh, it alienates people, well, sorry, you're out of luck. This is 2022. Whatever you do is going to alienate people. Make sure it's something that's essential. 
make sure you're standing for things that are actually essential and not unnecessarily putting up a boundary between a way that you might connect with someone. That, I mean, I might nuance it and say it that way. I, I agree with that. Here's here's the way I would say it, agreeing completely with you. And I'm going to paint with a broad brush here, but fundamentalists have permanently alienated half of the of the country. Progressives have permanently alienated the other half. Evangelicals at any given time are going to alienate half, and it's going to be a different half depending on their theological commitments. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, it's going to be everybody. Right. And I think that's a great way of saying it. That's a yes. good way to think about it. Uh, he gives a couple of things for how the decline can be reversed. Mm-hmm. I, I thought this was probably the weakest part of the article. Right. And I think some of that is because he's pulling his punches for the third and fourth parts of this series. Mm-hmm. But, but, but one of them that I did really think is worth talking about is the limits of secularism. So he says, despite many signs of strength and its and its growth in, um, as a philosophy, secularism has shown severe limitations in its ability to form community and give individuals meaning, identity, contentment, and the ability to face suffering. And here's a prediction that he says, it may not seem as compelling an alternative to religion in the future as it is now. I would contend that the American public is getting more religious, not less. I agree. Even as they are getting less overtly Christian, not yes. more. Explain what you mean by that. I completely agree with that. People are looking for meaning, especially in the wake of the pandemic. People have had to deal with death, suffering. Um, they've had to be alone with themselves in a way that forces you to think about what it is you believe, who you are, what you stand for. The polarization in our country has left people with high anxiety. You have a lot of people in your head uh, that you're playing to at all times, and it's led to mental health crises, overdose deaths like we've never seen before in our country, youth anxiety rates. I mean, it, it, we're not living in a, a particularly healthy time. Right. And the result is that people are looking for something to hold on to, something to grasp that is stable. And that's called the religious impulse. Mm-hmm. What does my life mean? Is there anything out bigger than this? Now, a lot of people are looking for these new age kind of spiritual but not religious or connecting with yourself or connecting with your higher power. But I certainly don't want to go to my parents' church, you know, for example. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say I think people have religious questions. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for substance. They're looking for something to hold on to, even as they're repelled from the traditional options for faith, Christianity, going to church. Um, reading a Bible. It's a figure it out for yourself kind of religion, which we've talked about before. This is Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self in a mm-hmm. Nutshell, is what kind of alternatives you'll look for in today's culture. But there's a very strong religious impulse right now in our culture, even if we're seeing the numbers of nuns rise. I agree. Let me give another angle on this to give you some other evidence for it, is you have to have some group for support. Otherwise, you get loneliness, alienation, etc. The most fundamental group, historically speaking, has been your family. Mm-hmm. And secularization has had, had a very intentional war on the family. Mm-hmm. That family gets spread out so broad that it fundamentally doesn't mean anything, and it really doesn't provide you much support. So if you're hearing this, you're saying, yes, but I've got a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters, and they are supporting me. That's true. But broadly speaking, we have more alienated people because we've seen a breakdown in the core idea of family. 
And so people start searching. Well, obviously, religion has been a transcendental group of people. You get the Acts 2 and Acts 4 church, which are like the ultra, the ultimate family that you mm-hmm. have. But once you turn your back on the on the uh, genetic family, you turn your back on the spiritual family, you start clutching at almost anything. I'm just going to point out to you, and I believe that the rise of gang affiliation, gangs are getting bigger. Why? Is People just like violence? No, people need belonging. Mm-hmm. Political parties are not only getting more polarized and more partisan, that's because they're now your identity, not just your opinion about economic issues. Right. We're looking to these places, and the Bible tells us this will happen. We're looking to a lot of strange places to find belonging and identity that are unhealthy, and you see that rippling through our culture. And I believe you're right. It's that impulse that God impulse in us to find belonging is expressing itself in extremely unhealthy ways. Mm-hmm. What I think Keller is, says is that as that proceeds, people will, particularly if we're evangelizing, if we're, I mean, by that I mean we're telling the truth of the gospel and inviting people into the Acts 2 church and into the truth of God, that all of a sudden religion isn't the bad guy it used to be. Right. Yeah. That's he a, might that's be right about point. that. Yeah. Well, jumping off of Keller then to kind of wrap the conversation up, what what is your takeaway for evangelicals given what we've talked about? What is your advice to evangelicals, to evangelical church leaders, to people listening? Okay, this is a lot of information. These are a lot of high-level discussions on what's happening in big groups. What's the takeaway for evangelicals? From my point of view, one of the takeaways is the same thing that the early church had is look at what your core commitments are. And while even fundamentalists share the core commitments to the inspiration, authority, the truth of the word, they simply do so in such a way that it doesn't translate well into our culture. It's almost monastic Mm -hmm. in the sense of withdrawal. And I think what I'm hearing us say is, is... you have to hold on to those. And the challenge before us is how to take those into the culture, not as an enemy. Remember, Jesus approached the world as those who are lost and those who are found. And how do we fundamentalists see the world as the good guys and the bad guys? I'm painting with a broad brush. So how do we hold to those core commitments and yet go engage the culture uh, as lost People And how do we face the hostility and not really be daunted by it because we don't have a partisan position. Mm-hmm. We simply have the truth of God. I think evangelicals need to learn what evangelism is again. Right, right. That's my key takeaway. What, what are some things you thought of? Yeah, I, I, uh, very similar to that, I would say know what you believe and care about people. Yes. Part of the problem is, as evangelicals, and, and this this may be the anti-intellectualism that Keller's talking about, but I, I see it not quite as intellectualism, but we just don't know why we believe what we believe. We've received certain things. Well, this is what Christians have always believed, or this is what I grew up believing, or this is what Christians supposedly believe about these topics. That's not good enough anymore. Know what you believe and why you believe it. And then genuinely care about people. The other alternative is know what you believe and then define the world as people that are in and people that are out. No, you should be stable in what you believe. And then you should be genuinely caring about people, whatever group they fall into. And building deep, committed relationships with people, caring about them, meeting them where they are. 
but not, and this is always the temptation, not being dragged to where they are ideologically because you care about them, but not being dragged away from them because they aren't where you are ideologically. Yes, and the way you frame this, and we started with kind of the fundamentalist evangelicals in the middle being pulled and progressives on the other side. And I realize we're speaking in broad categories, but you inevitably do. Here's what I'm hearing you say. The narrative from fundamentalists and progressives are this. You can either hold unshakable belief in God's truth, or you can care about people, but you can't do both. Mm -hmm. Now pick which one you want to do. And evangelicals say, I don't think so. I don't agree with that. Yeah, we and that's what I'm that. hearing you say. We reject that. Yeah. So that that would be the takeaway for me is we can actually do both of those things. Very difficult. It's going to get us maligned by various people at various times, but that's the goal. That's and I think that's a biblical goal. And so as as evangelicals, if we could be known for that, that would be a great thing to be defined by. And it's certainly a positive way to define ourselves. I think we do indeed spend too much time fending off the attacks from either side. And we'd probably be better off just doing what the church in Acts did, and that is, let's get on about our life and our evangelism. Mm -hmm. We don't have to answer every tweet. We don't have to weigh in on, on every book that gets written. We don't have to respond to every Christian who's trying to pull us one direction or the other. We can just take the truth that we believe and take it to the culture. That may sound a little simplistic, but I think we're getting a little preoccupied with, uh, with the people that want us to come into their camp. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.